morning. Um, thank you, Ben. Uh, I, I get the, the privilege of getting to share with y'all on, on Palm Sunday. Uh, like Ben was saying, uh, Easter is one of those times of year where uh, it's, it's one of the few times of year where, where folks begin to make an effort to uh, maybe get reconnected with church or get back into church, or maybe that is the one time of year that they go. And so um, I'm, I, I do view it as a privilege that I get to share uh, what leads up to Easter. Um, because Palm Sunday, as, as Ben's already mentioned, is, is kind of our uh, <clears throat> introduction to what we are going to do the rest of this week and next Sunday. And uh, this is an emotional time of year for a lot of people, and I, I am one of those people. And um, it, it's going to, to mark the beginning of what is viewed and is what is called Holy Week. Uh, today is the beginning of that. And uh, like I said, it comes into a culmination on Easter Sunday next week. And so uh, you'll have to join us Friday and next Sunday for... What we have in store is we reflect on um, Jesus' last days and hours on the earth uh, before he went to the cross on our behalf. But I'm not, I'm not going to spoil the story any further. Uh, uh, today is Palm Sunday, and um, it's the day that we mark out as the day that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and in less than a week's time, he is going to be put on trial and killed. Uh, and so that is what we are remembering at Palm Sunday uh, and his disciples knew this, or at least they, they should have, uh, because Jesus told them multiple times that this was going to happen. Uh, so this, this should not have been too terribly surprising to the people who followed him around. Uh, as we're going to see, and, and I think as you'll find as you read, to some of them it ended up being kind of surprising. Uh, but today we're going to spend our time in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, so if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to Matthew 21, um, and when folks heard I was preaching today, they asked, are you going to continue uh, in the Sermon on the Mount? And I thought about it, and then I said, well, we're going to jump ahead to later on in Matthew, uh, because Matthew, the whole gospel, is, is one uh, complete story. And so I think what we're going to find, that as we look at this idea of the king arriving, and, and the things that Jesus does when he arrives we're going to be able to think back to that kingdom that Jesus has been talking about on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but if, if we're going to be in Matthew 21, and on your way there, I want to just briefly read a verse from Matthew 16 to give us some context as to what is going on in Matthew 21. Because Matthew 21, uh, it just starts right off in the middle of things, telling us that well, something just happened, and here we go. Um, so in Matthew 16, verse 21... Matthew tells us, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so Jesus and his followers at, at the time of Matthew 16, they're up north in a region called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and, and there, as there often was wherever Jesus was at, Jesus found tension with the scribes and Pharisees. Um, for, for lack of a better way of thinking about it, these are kind of the, the antagonist of the story. They're the ones that are kind of poking things along and making things difficult for Jesus and his followers much of the time. Um, 
And so after another round of conflict with these people, uh, Jesus gives here the first of three foretellings of his death and resurrection. He's going to give three total before he arrives in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and he begins to make it clear, we have to go to Jerusalem. This is something we have to do. Uh, and, and when we go there, it, it's not going to be comfortable. Uh, in fact, it's going to be uncomfortable to the point of death. Uh, and Jesus tells them that. We've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things and be killed. And then as if to take the next breath, he's like, okay, now off we go. It's time to go to Jerusalem. And I imagine if you're one of these people that's following Jesus around, you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, wait up. You just told us that this is going to be bad. And you're headed there on purpose. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? Uh, and, and as Ben just shared that song, talking about the love that Jesus expresses to us in going to the cross, that began so much sooner. Like It, it comes to its full fruition on the cross, but Jesus chose this. He knew what was coming. And he chose to make the trip. Uh, and so they begin a road trip to Jerusalem. Uh, in Galilee... As they're moving down from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, uh, in Galilee, Jesus uh, gives the second prediction of his death. Uh, and, and as they move towards Jerusalem uh, and gives this, these further predictions, this crowd kind of builds up around him. So they're moving southbound toward Jerusalem, and they kind of gather a crowd as they go. And this is probably for two reasons. Number one, word about Jesus is out now. Uh, this is this guy who can heal uh, and uh, has raised the dead on, on an occasion. And, and word has gotten out about this Jesus character. And so as he moves southbound, he goes through these towns, people are they're spreading the word. They're telling people, hey, Jesus is on his way through town. The other part is they, they begin to travel with him because they're headed to Passover and to take Passover in Jerusalem. Uh, and so it was very likely that many of these people would have already been thinking of going towards Jerusalem soon anyway. And as Jesus comes into town and says, yeah, we're, we're heading southbound, let's, let's go with him. What a road trip. Um, and so with, with this kind of in our brains, this, this kind of traveling party, this crowd, as well as uh, what Jesus' close followers knows is looming at the end of this trip, uh, they, we're going to look at the end of an over 70-mile trek. Uh, they didn't have cars, so it's a trek. Uh, we're going to look at the end of this 70-mile journey south where Jesus and his followers arrive in Jerusalem. So if you would, we're going to be Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And when Jesus entered the temple, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. <laughs> have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you again for this morning. I just thank you for your word. I just um, thank you for this time of year where we get to slow down and, and uh, do our best to, to cut out distractions and focus in on a, a, such a crucial point in history in our, in our faith journey, in our lives. And I just pray that, that as we look at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem this morning, uh, that we would celebrate that the King has arrived and that we would um, seek what you have for us this morning as we, as we look towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The King has arrived. <laughs> uh, and... Matthew gives us three scenes speaking to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Uh, and before we dive into these, I want to make a couple of observations about Jesus' arrival. Um, because they, to make these are going to give comment to what Jesus does. Uh, so the first is, Jesus' attitude and approach to publicity has shifted completely. Uh, if countless times before this, and if you think back, Jesus has performed a miracle, and, and sometimes somebody responds and says, "Yes, like you are the Messiah." This is, and, and many times Jesus says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, shh!" Like now is not my time. Now is not my time. My time has not yet come. That is over. <laughs> it's done. He has spent significant amounts of time asking folks to just say, Ooh, let's keep it, keep it down. Yes, now don't. Stay cool. But when we see from this first scene, it, it, that's done. Jesus, his arrival in Jerusalem could not have been more public. It, it was, 
It was not in hiding. It was not in the cover of night. It could not have been more public. They're shouting. There's people, there's a crowd gathered. Everybody in their religious world was gathered in this city. It couldn't have been more public. The, the second thing that we see in, in this scene uh, is, is people's response. And so uh, the king has arrived, and Jesus and his entourage, they, they arrive in Jerusalem, but it says the first place they go is this re- region called Bethphage. And it says that they go up to the Mount of Olives. Uh, and the Mount of Olives, I want to try to give you a sense of this scene. Uh, the Mount of Olives is this hillside just to the east of Jerusalem. Uh, and and the, the mount actually slopes down, and real quick, their mountain, they're not mountains like we have mountains. They're like really good hills. Um, and so don't think they climbed this big peak. It, you know, it's a, it's a good hill. It was a good walk up it, but um, not a mountain. So this Mount of Olives, they're up and they're raised up and on this hillside, and it slopes down to Jerusalem below it. And if you're on the Mount of Olives and you turn and you face Jerusalem, you actually look down and kind of into the city. Uh, and so to give you, you can actually like see down in, and, and one of the best tourist spots for Jerusalem is outside of the city on the Mount of Olives. And you can kind of look and you kind of look down and you get a feel for this city. And, and nowadays, um, the city of Jerusalem has kind of like expanded and eaten up the Mount of Olives to where it kind of almost includes parts of it. Uh, but if you are on this hillside and you look down towards where the temple used to be, nowadays you see this big reflective gold dome, and it's called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and it is a, a Muslim structure which stands where the temple once was. In Jesus' time, he would have looked down off the mount and he would have seen the temple. And, and in Jesus' time, that temple was going under some, like, it was built, but they were like doing some beautifying things to it. And he's looking down on this temple, the center for God's people's religious worship, and in those days, often their political life. So Jesus is on the, on the Mount of Olives, and he's staring down at Jerusalem, looking down on it from afar. And as they prepare to leave, Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of them to procure a donkey and a colt. Uh, for his descent. And their task is to go, in, go down into Jerusalem, find this donkey and this colt, and then tie them and bring them back up here. And also, if anybody asks you anything, if anybody says, hey, like, what are you doing? Just tell them the Lord needs it. Uh, and we almost get this, this hang-up of like, well, why, did, okay, why didn't you just have your own? But they just took this big trek, uh, and, and it seems that Jesus may have or possibly could have had some sort of conversation. They've been to Jerusalem before. And there's probably a moment where he or one of his disciples has gone to this person and said, hey, one day we're going to have to do this thing where I'm going to have to ride into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey and a colt. And when that day comes, we're going to need those. <laughs> can, we, can we use one of yours when we get there? I think this is something that, that has been a conversation in the past because Jesus knows the prophecy. He knows what it says. And so when these guys come down and they're like, hey, uh, can we get the, the colt and the donkey? The guy's like, okay. And they send them and they say the Lord needs them. And then Matthew, as if to uh, like answer our questions, breaks the story and like turns to us and says, hey, this was... 
this happened because the prophet told us that this had to happen. So Matthew fills us in on why is this strange donkey colt thing specifically called out in the story. Um, but Jesus didn't get this donkey and this colt for need of travel. They just took a big journey. They've been walking a long time. And they probably had like, some pack animals to carry some of their things. And this big group that was moving with them probably had some animals along the way. But it is not because Jesus needs a ride. It is because Jesus knows what he is going into Jerusalem to do. And he knows what the Old Testament scriptures say. And he knows that he needs to be on this animal so that way he can signify some things to some people. So that way they don't miss it. He could not be more public. And he could not be more blatantly obvious about what he is riding into Jerusalem to do. Rather, the donkey and the colt are to fulfill a prophecy about the coming of the king of Israel. Uh, Zechariah 9.9, if you want to go um, and look at this prophecy in its context. Zechariah 9.9 is where Jesus quotes from when he says this. Uh, and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And this is interesting because this is the part where Matthew and, and isn't recorded this part, but it says, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows that in Zechariah it says, Righteous and having salvation is he. He knows that. And that's why Matthew quotes this. And if we think that he's quoting it just because, well, he had to put something in here, no. He knew that this was the person who was coming to bring salvation to God's people. Righteous and having salvation is he. Jesus knows this prophecy, and so do many of the Jewish people. Uh, because the disciples, they, they bring these donkeys back, and they begin to lay their cloaks on the donkeys so Jesus can sit on top of them. And then as he rides downhill into the city towards the temple, in verse 8, we find out that there's a crowd. There's a big bunch of people here. Some of them part of the traveling party, but so many more already gathered in the city. And Jerusalem at the time, uh, it, it is estimated that it had a population of 25 to 30,000 people. It's a lot of people. During the time of Passover, that population would quadruple or, or go five times as many sometimes. So in a week's time, this city has gone from 25-ish thousand to over 100,000 people gathered in the city to worship. The city's not going to hold them. They're going to spill over into the outside regions, which is probably why they headed towards this region of Bethphage when they arrive. The place would have been a zoo. It's... Like, like, Disney is built for lots of people. Jerusalem, it's got so many people coming to it at this time, it's overflowing. The city, at, at Jesus' time, is estimated to be about a square mile. And so the, there's so many people here. And as Jesus descends the mount on these donkeys, the people in the outside area, as he moves down, they realize the significance. Whoever this guy is, this Jesus, He's on top of that donkey and he's coming down into Jerusalem and they begin to herald him as their king. They take off their cloaks. It's likely one of the only things that they have as far as a cloak goes and they begin to lay it on the ground so that way these donkeys can walk across it. 
Others begin to cut and pull palm branches off the trees, waving them, laying them down to herald the coming of the king. And we need to look at some symbols here. Uh, the first is their cloaks. Laying down your cloak before someone is a sign of submission. You're saying, I, I am in service to you, and you usually do it to royalty. So they're, they're submitting to Jesus as their king in this instance by laying their cloaks down. The second is these palm branches. Uh, a palm branch was, and in some ways still is, a symbol of Israeli nationalism. To the people back then, this was, this was like their, the thing that they held on to as like, yes, it, like you, you put the palm branch up and it signifies, yes, we're the people of Israel. Israel is claiming Jesus as their king as he strolls down into Jerusalem. It's a, it's a political kingship. They're ready for it. The third thing here is the Mount of Olives held kingly expectations. So uh, the Mount of Olives, it, it's kind of this weird thing because in the Old Testament, it, it's there. Um, and sometimes we don't think of it outside of Jesus' time. Um, but when David, King David, was chased from Jerusalem after the fallout with his son, not putting it lightly, um, he fled to the Mount of Olives. <laughs> this is likely the place that he fled to, and there he set up a scene of a king who worshipped God on the Mount of Olives. That's the scene we get of David. Later, uh, David's son Solomon kind of did the opposite. He set up idol worship on top of the mount. And it's almost this comment in the Old Testament of, look at how they're headed here. Let's follow the trajectory. The prophet Ezekiel has a vision of Jerusalem, and in it he sees the glory of the Lord leave Jerusalem and head out toward the Mount of Olives. And then it's mostly radio silent about this hillside until Jesus begins to interact with it. And there's no mistake in Jesus going here first. The picture is one of Jesus bringing and returning the presence of God and the glory of God from wherever it went out from Jerusalem in Ezekiel's vision and bringing it back into and to dwell in the temple. And they're looking for like, oh, what's going to happen? And they're, they're missing this part because they're looking for a political king. But Jesus is bringing something else into Jerusalem with him when he arrives. And as Jesus descends the mount, the people begin to shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. God, please save us. Save us, Son of David. And indeed, he had come to save them. The entire city is a ruckus. Because if you have a large group and people begin to shout, it gets wild pretty quick. It gets out of hand. What is going on? Is this a, is this a political takeover? Is there some sort of uprising? What, what is going on? And, and we, we note that not, this is not a universal everybody got it, because verse 8 tells us most of the crowd. There are some people to whom when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, they're either super scared because they're like, wow, this is, this is, getting, this is getting big. Uh, I don't know if I want to, uh, this is, seems scary. There's a lot of people here, and there's a lot of people shouting, and they're heralding this guy as their king. There's another group of people 
that, as we're going to see, become hostile to this because Jerusalem had rulers and kings. They already had it. There's a Roman king. There's religious rulers. They're already in place. And so when Jesus rolls into Jerusalem with fanfare and shouting and people yelling, God save us, and treating Jesus as king, those rulers are going, oh, oh no. <laughs> What's getting ready to happen? They're, they're kind of getting worried. Even if they have all this military power behind them, when someone rolls in and says, I, I am the king, it's threatening to you. And some of the people are beginning to get uneasy. The king has arrived and he is here to save us. And many of those gathered think that Jesus is there to overthrow that Roman rule. We are tired of this Roman king. He has been king long enough. He has imposed all of these things on us long enough. And yes, Jesus has arrived to set us free from that. Save us, son of David. Some think that Jesus is only there to announce this. He's not the one that's going to do it. He's just there to announce it because they respond when they say, who is this? They say, this is the prophet Jesus. He's just the guy that's coming to announce how God's going to save his people. The king has arrived, but Scripture tells us that the Messiah is not just a king. The Messiah is also a priest. And so in our second scene, Matthew is going to key in on this priestly role of Jesus as the king. Starting in verse 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yeah. <laughs> Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you've prepared praise? And leaving there, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged. Jesus has now arrived in Jerusalem and he does exactly what a king would do, uh, the king of Israel would do. He goes to the central hub of their world, the temple. And Ben shared when we looked at Jesus' first cleansing of the temple, um, often around Passover, they would set up these vendors outside, like in the, in the temple courtyard and outside the edge of the temple. Uh, and, and these vendors are a means... And I actually loved what he said. They're a means of promoting quick and easy and uh, like you don't have to plan very hard with these vendors because you can just show up in Jerusalem as long as you got a bag of cash, you're good. Your worship's going to be your worship experience is going to be easy. And people would travel into Jerusalem, and they would go to the temple and they would exchange their money at the money changers with a handsome upcharge by way of a tax. And then they would take that newly exchanged money and they would go over to the, the people who are selling animals and grain and all that type stuff, whatever they needed for sacrifice, and they would use that newly exchanged money to buy with a handsome fee attached to it, 
whatever they were going to offer as sacrifice. And these working the tables, they're getting rich off of making worship easy and off of the convenience of others. And to the person who could maybe just barely afford to pay for a sacrifice, with all these barriers of entry, they might not be able to afford it now. If you're not generating as much money outside the temple, you're going to have a much more difficult time getting inside the temple. The text tells us specifically uh, that Jesus overturned their seats, but it, it keys into the seats of one specific group. It says, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And if we remember from the last time we read Leviticus, which is often and frequently that we read Leviticus, the sacrifice of a pigeon or a turtle dove is that of someone who cannot afford a full sacrificial lamb or goat. These are the poor. The, the people selling pigeons are targeting the poor. The insinuation is that these vendors are taking advantage of and diminishing the worship of, of those who are least able to pay, in particular. And Jesus the king has had enough. <laughs> and after sending them out, Jesus quotes from two prophets. Uh, and he, he, Jesus does this cool thing where he takes two different prophets. He takes a little bit of quotes from both and he smashes them together into this new like super quote towards the Pharisees. Uh, the first part where he, where he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That comes from Isaiah 56, uh, which highlights what the house of God could be like. And he quotes that alongside Jeremiah chapter 7. And I want to read this because uh, it couldn't be in greater contrast to Isaiah 56. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 11, says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I give to you and to your fathers, as I did at Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen and the offspring of Ephraim. Jesus takes a prophecy in Isaiah 56 that is supposed to be about the good things that are going to happen in the house of God, in this place of worship, and he mashes it up with Jeremiah 7 to say, oh, how far you have fallen. And, and when he says this den of robbers, the group he's talking to, they know. They know the scripture. They know what he's doing. Because when you read the Old Testament and that's like your whole life and there's a prophecy that says, hey, uh, something really, really bad is going to happen to like your center of worship, you remember that one pretty well. 
And in quoting this, he's telling the religious leaders that they have brought ruin to God's house. Jesus, as priest, is seeking to set right the things which occur in God's presence. We're not trying to make money off of the poor. We're trying to worship our God. And in contrast to the money changers and vendors that are present at the beginning of the story, after Jesus deals with them and sends them out, we see the blind and the lame and kids enter the temple. And the feeling is this. Now that the temple has been cleared, the people who want to come and worship their God wholeheartedly, whether or not anybody can make money off them, are able to. This is what the king priest does. He restores right worship to the the house of God. And the, the kids enter the temple courtyard shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And real quick, if you, this, this could be its own thing, but um, take time to learn from kids. Because these religious leaders, they've spent so much time in their book. That these kids are more keyed into what is going on with the arrival of Jesus than they are. They might not have fully realized what he was going to do, but they're shouting Hosanna. Take time to learn from kids. And the leaders hear this, and they see Jesus healing these people, and it says specifically, um, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and they hear the kids crying out, the, the leaders go, hey, Jesus, do you hear this? Do you hear what they're saying? Stop, stop them. Do you hear what, did you hear what they said? And Jesus goes, yes, of course I hear it. Haven't you ever read your Bible? That's kind of what he tells them. He says, well, yeah, I hear them. They're calling for their king. Y'all have read the scriptures, right? Out of the mouths of infants and babes, you've prepared praise. This is so good because Jesus is talking to the religious elite. These people's job is to just spend time reading and teaching the Old Testament to the whole people of Israel. So when he says, haven't y'all read? They know. They have. Um, But just because they've read it doesn't mean they've understood it. And even more so, doesn't mean they've believed it. Jesus quotes Psalm 8 here, uh, and in doing so, he's not only telling them that he hears their praise, but he's accepting it. Again, this is, this is a, an entirely new publicity thing for Jesus. Before it was, hey, well, let's, not yet, not yet. Now Jesus is like, absolutely yes. <laughs> the, yes, the king has arrived, and he accepts it. The priest king has arrived. And verse 17 tells us that Jesus leaves Jerusalem. So he's there for the day. And then at night he leaves Jerusalem. He goes outside the city and he lodges in Bethany. Which brings us to the third scene of the king's arrival. In the morning, verse 18, 
As he was returning to the city, Jesus became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig, and the fig tree withered at once. And when, the, the, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So we looked at scenes one and two. And, and as we do so, and as we did, you might have been nodding and going, yes, Palm Sunday. <laughs> I'm, I'm tracking with the story. Jesus has arrived. The king has arrived. Yes, the people are shouting, Hosanna. I like it. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he, yeah, he, yes, he cleanses the temple. He brings in, he restores the worship in the temple. And, and we're tracking with it, like, yes, this is great. This is Palm Sunday. And, and then, yes, oh, he's going back out to Bethany, and he's coming back Monday morning, and now Jesus is mad at a fig tree. Wait. And it's almost like... Sometimes Matthew, and I've mentioned this before in the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes when Matthew is writing, it's almost like he doesn't understand how us, like American English folks, like to have a story told to us. Because he just sticks this fig tree thing. Matthew, you had it. You were going so good. We had so much momentum. Like, Jesus is king. And he's mad at a fig tree. Jesus is headed back to Jerusalem on Monday. And he's hungry. <laughs> and he sees a fig tree in it, in it, from a distance. It's full of leaves and looks like it might be loaded. And he goes out and it might be time for one of those early figs. This is going to be an idea. This early fig is going to be important. And it's not without reason that Jesus thinks that this tree would have figs on it. At the beginning of this chapter, Matthew told us that Jesus is in a region called Bethphage. And that region, when you translate the word Bethphage, it means house of the early fig. So this area that Jesus is in is known for having early figs. And from the Old Testament, we find out that the early figs are the, they're the best. Like, you want to get those. I, me, personally, I don't understand why. Maybe they're just better. Um, but like, it's all over. They're like, oh yes, I desire the early figs. Here we are. But Bethphage is called the house of the early fig, and Jesus sees this fig tree, and it's full of leaves. Looks like it might be full of figs, and he gets over to it. And the picture is this. The region's name suggests that this tree could just be full of, full of figs, full of fruit. The fruit could be here. And Jesus' actions when he moves forward are like many of the prophets who time and again did something outwardly. They took an action. They, did, they wore something to convey a spiritual message or significance or consequence to the people of Israel. And remember, the people have said, yeah, this is the prophet Jesus. Jesus is getting ready to fully realize that role right now. 
The fig tree, much like the palm, stands for something. The fig, in their culture, signified national wealth and prosperity. When there are figs, you are doing good. The fig is a sign for, for things are going well. Um, in their culture and in the Old Testament, you find a saying that says, everyone sat under his own vine and fig tree because things are good and the figs are ripe. Jesus knows Scripture and he takes this beat the following morning on his way back to Jerusalem where he has already told them he will die to highlight the severity of Israel's condition one more time, and he does it through this fig tree that he meets on the way. This fig tree that could be full of fruit. And many prophets have used fruit trees to highlight spiritual condition, and the most striking is from the prophet Micah. Micah, um, Micah's one of those, yeah, he's, he's a fun prophet to go to. Uh, Micah chapter 7, I'm going to read this real quick, starting in verse 1. This is the waiting for God, for the God of salvation. It says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they all weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright among them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has arrived, and their confusion is at hand. There's no early figs. There could be, but due to their spiritual state, this tree, Jesus isn't talking about trees. There's no fruit. The thing that it was once known for is not there anymore. And Jesus connects this thought behind being fruit with the prophecy of Micah and others and brings it all crashing down on this moment as he's headed back to Jerusalem and as a symbol for the people. Y'all could have been producing fruit. This temple system could have been producing fruit that was pleasing to God, but it is not anymore. Jesus pronounces a curse on this fig tree. And now it can't produce fruit. Notice he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. That's, that's a lot. It's not going to be pleasing to God anymore. Not in the way it was. Those times are gone. Jesus continues to give some sense. And Micah is going to be useful here uh, again because the disciples, they go, well, what happened to the fig tree? How is it all of a sudden just like withered and dead? And Jesus tells them that by faith, they can perform big, drastic things, even throwing, and, and he says specifically, this mountain into the sea. So two ideas are being contrasted in Jesus' words here. 
You have nice religious appearance of a green, lush tree that could have fruit and deep, effective faith that produces a response. And he's, he's taking it and saying, listen, we're done with appearances. It's time for, for real faith that produces a response, that does something. And when Jesus says this mountain, he's likely talking about a specific mountain. He's not saying pick one and it will toss it over. He's talking about a specific mountain because the temple itself is built up on a mount. Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple in this. And what's wild is after Jesus' death, it's not that, not that far along. Jesus is also predicting the death of a different temple himself. He has already told them, and we're, we're going to see, and I think maybe we've already hit it in John. Jesus begins to talk about himself as this temple walking around. There's going to be destruction of a temple. When he, when he brings up this, throw it into the sea, the sea in their culture is dangerous, scary. It's where you go to be destroyed. In Genesis, it talks about the, the waters as wild and waste. The ocean's scary to these people. And Jesus is like, listen, it's going to get destroyed. This mount is going is to get tossed. Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple as well as this religious system by which they approach God. The priest king who is prophet has arrived. And I want to note one last thing from the prophet Micah because uh, it, it wraps Jesus' thought up here. Micah 3, so four chapters back in Micah. Micah 3, starting in verse 9, says this. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its, pre, its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Think about the way they were gathering funds outside the temple at the beginning of the story. Yet, they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Jesus isn't giving them new information. He's giving them information that they should have already had. He's just applying it to a group of people who thought they were okay. Notice it said in Micah, they lean on the Lord and say, this is great. Look at all we have, the temple and all its glory. The temple fund is full. We're doing renovations. And Jesus says, yeah, where's the fruit? And there is none. And so, he pronounces this judgment on this religious system. The way they lived was long and not, ple and long and not pleasing to God, and they they'd look at the religious system and they say, we got it and judgment is pronounced. And so to a group of leaders who are acquainted with Scripture and are just infatuated with the temple, they love it. 
when the priest king arrives, the one that their entire system has been waiting for and pointing to, and all the people as he comes in the city are, Hosanna! God save us! They miss it. In fact, they're trying to talk Jesus. Like, Why don't you tell him to stop? In contrast, outside the temple and those who previously could not get in are shouting, God save us. The religious leaders and those in love with this system, they scoff. <sighs> what is this? And shortly after this, they're going to make plans to deal with this new king and we're going to learn about that Friday. We're going to reflect on that Friday. We must not be like them. And, and if you hear that and go, no, it's, we're, I'm good. They thought that. They thought they had it. They were comfortable. Our king has arrived. And when he did it the first time, some people outright rejected it. They went, nope, we're going we're gonna to try to deal with you. And other people, they were excited at first, but then when the crowd got stirred up, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know about this. And then others, when he went to the cross, they see him hanging there and they gave it up. They're like, how could Jesus save them now? He's dead. And still others, and, and my prayer is that this would be us, understood. Jesus did come to save the people of Israel. And in doing so, he saved so many more. They respond to Jesus in faith. Accept him as king because he died. They accept him as king because he died. And they commit to following him and living the way that he had shown them and pursuing God through a new system. One that will bear fruit. One that is built on faith and not appearance. Jesus is king and this season, as we always should, it is our prayer that we remember the days leading up to the cross. That's what Palm Sunday is about. To remember the days leading up to the cross where our king dies and in doing so, truly saves us. If, you, uh, if that's new to you, it's okay. the challenge is still the same. Respond in faith. If this is not new to you, the challenge is still the same. Respond in faith. Worship that God. Truly worship that God in faith this season.